Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this healing little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Sandy Olson. Now, if you know Sandy Olson, like I know Sandy Olson, then you'll know her as a herbalist who moved to the island a short time ago and built a straw bale house with her husband. Today, we are going to get to find out a heck of a lot more about Sandy. We're going to get to hear Sandy speak about her work as a death celebrant. We're going to hear Sandy describe her relationship with storytelling. And also, we're going to hear Sandy talk about her work with helping people tune into nature. If you've heard any previous interviews up till this one, I think you'll notice that this one's going to be a little bit different. And it's different because Sandy and I wind up talking about death quite a lot. And the reason we did is because Sandy, I found out through this interview, has had a varied background in helping people work through the death process. And I find it kind of amazing to talk about. And I sincerely think that Many people listening of all sorts of different ages will benefit from hearing some of the topics that we touch on during this interview. So I hope you enjoy it. And now, here is my interview with Sandy Olson. Sandy Olson sitting down with me on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for in- inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming. It's a it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon out there, like scorching hot. We're in a nice, cool basement right now, so it's good. Feels great. Right on. All right. So um, the first traditional question of the program that I'm going to ask you here is: What brought you to Pender Island? What brought me to Pender Island? were about 75 to 100 eagles. Don, my husband, and I were debating and deliberating on where we wanted to move from Victoria to. We were torn between Cortez Island and Pender Island. We had narrowed it down. And we had friends on both. And there were pros and cons to both. And we were looking for land to buy. And we'd been to both islands a number of times. We had sold our house in Victoria. We were in a rental for a year before we decided and moved here. And we were sitting on the sun deck in the summer talking about, okay, we need to decide today because we had to give our notice and so on. So we're sitting there and I said, okay, well, let's talk about Pender. So we were going back and forth talking about the pros and cons. And I said, we need a sign And Don said, I agree, we need a sign. So we're sitting there. And for some reason, I looked up and it was completely quiet. And there were about 75 to 100 eagles flying about maybe 100 feet above us. And then I said to Don, look at all those eagles. And he looked and he said, are you sure they're eagles? Maybe they're turkey vultures because... That'd be weird if they were eagles. We went and got the binoculars and looked, they were eagles. So that was that. <clears throat> wow, that's incredible because I, I don't think I've ever seen anywhere near that amount of eagles flying Neither together. have I. Wow. Except for maybe 
out at Goldstream when the fish are spawning and they're eating salmon. Sure. But other, but they were a lot of young ones. There were a lot of them and they were completely silent and they were just soaring in circles all around each other. It was un, very unusual. That's interesting. So what, what exactly did it mean more than just like, okay, well, this is the most amazing thing I've seen in forever in nature. Like, but did it mean something more than that in particular, like the eagle representing something or was it just like this, this is a phenomenon? That well, I we can... were just talking about wanting a sign and how cool of a sign is that? Yeah. <laughs> you can't really ignore a sign like that. I don't think. I've never seen anything like that since or before then. So that was a good enough sign for me. Sounds good to me. So you make the move to come to Pender Island because you followed this amazing sign from nature. And, and uh, how did that unfold from there? Everything was pretty smooth. We came over here a number of times, as I said. And uh, yeah, we just looked for property and looked at a bunch of... We sort of knew what we were looking for. So there was a lot of no, 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 no. <laughs> Until there was a yes. And it took a few months. And then we bought a piece of property and that was it. Okay. And did you guys build your home? We did. Yeah. We built a, a very small straw bale house. All right. Well, let's get into that because that's kind of interesting because not everybody builds a small straw bale house. How, was, uh, <clears throat> how did you come to the decision to do that? And how was the process? We had been dreaming about building a straw bale house for about 30 years. We just were busy doing a lot of other things, so it just took us a while. So we sort of always had it in the back of our mind that we wanted to do that. It didn't happen until when it happened. It was a process, took a couple of years, wouldn't want to do it again. Yeah. It was a lot of work. Uh, we did the general contracting, to, and uh, it's a lot of detail, so if you don't like detail work... <laughs> Which I actually don't mind detail work, but it's just nonstop, constant decision making. It's a lot. It's exciting and it's a lot of great things too, but it's, it's definitely not something I don't think I would want to do again. Yeah. But you're happy with the results. Totally happy. Yeah, we love it. It's great. Nice. Actually, I had uh, I interviewed somebody else, uh, Sarah Connolly, in a previous episode who built her house with her husband. And I, I think that it's interesting that I'm sure there's people listening who have that in mind to do in the future, perhaps. Is there any advice that you would give to people before jumping into that endeavor? Straw bale particular or just building? How about both? How about just building and perhaps straw bale? And, and, and maybe for people listening who don't know too much about straw bale, myself included, maybe tell us a little bit more about it. Well, instead of drywall and all the, you know, vapor barrier, poly and all of that stuff, you have really thick straw bales in between. And they're supported by bamboo stakes that are zip tied to the straw bales. So it's really solid. And then there's like a footer that, that goes all the way around. So it's all, you know, measured and fits in nicely and stacked and wedged and squeezed together. And then there's layers and layers of earthen plaster and different clay layers and than a finished coat. So it's a process. It's pretty labor intensive, but it's also really beautiful because it breathes and it inhales and exhales moisture. And it's like living in a living entity. It's really beautiful. Really? Well, yeah. When, so it inhales and exhales moisture, you say? Yeah. Yeah. Could you describe that a little bit more? Um, well, they've done studies where they've uh, taken a, a hydrometer. Is that what it's called? I'm not sure if I've got the right term, but it measures the moisture in a room and then 
So in a straw bale house, I think in the research, they had about 30 people come in, they had a dinner party, whatever. And the moisture levels went way up because we exude moisture. And and then after all the people left, a couple hours later, they measured it again. And the house had dealt with all the moisture. It had just absorbed it. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. And so in terms of how how is your overall experience in terms of living in the house and sleeping in there and breathing in there versus living in previous situations where you talk about, because, you know, the average house has drywall, like we're surrounded by it right now, right? Right. How is the, uh, the overall living experience for you? It's just more organic. It feels healthier. It holds the heat and then it disperses the heat more slowly. So... Often in a traditional house, when you're trying to heat it in the wintertime, you know, the furnace will come on if you've got a furnace heat or, you know, and it gets hot, cold, hot, cold. It's hard to keep it temperate. It's hard to keep that equilibrium of just the, a more, it's the word I'm looking for, just a more equal temperature. Right, more con- continuous, constant temperature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we find with the straw bale and all the earthen plasters, it's just, it's very comfortable. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Yeah. All right. So you and your husband, Don, have been living on the island for uh, three and a half years. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and how is the transition going? Because you, actually, I just wanted to touch on Cortez for a minute because I've only been to Cortez once, but I hear people speak so fondly of it. And it's kind of an amazing little place to me as well, too. But why did it come down between Cortez and Pender for you two? Well, there were a number of things, but a lot of the properties that were for sale up there when we were looking were bigger and we didn't want a really big property because we're getting older and we don't need a huge amount of space. And the more you have, the more you have to look after. And we just wanted to simplify and have a small house and a garden. But I think when it, well, you know, I'm getting a little off topic. One of the things that probably decided it is that we have a lot of family and friends in Victoria. And it's just so much easier (laughs) to move between this place and Victoria than it is Cortez. As you know, you have to take two ferries together after you've driven up island for quite a number of hours. So friends said, we're never going to see you if you move to Cortez. And probably would have been partially true. They would have seen us a lot less. So so we opted for Pender. And I think we resonated more with it too. I think we just liked it. Okay, right on. Yeah, easier to get to, except for right now, we're in the midst of the uh, Cumberland being out of commission. Well, only for one more week. But I feel for the the fellow that got injured. It's just, yeah. Yeah, that sounded gruesome. It really did. Yeah. Really did. I hope I wish him speedy healing. For sure. So you've been on Pender for three and a half years. And how's the transition going to being on the island? How are you? How are you enjoying it? It's great. It's great. We needed a change. We wanted to get out of the city. Victoria was getting busier and noisier. And yeah, we wanted to be closer to nature. We teach in nature. We spend a lot of time in nature anyway. So we thought might as well just live more in it instead of having to drive to it, which seems counterproductive. Sure, definitely. Well, let's get into that because you say that you teach in nature. So if you just want to let the listeners know um, exactly what uh, you mean by that, and uh, maybe let's get into that for a little bit and and hear about that. Well, Don and I are both herbalists. He's been an herbalist longer than I have. I've been an herbalist probably about 30 years. He's probably been one for about 40 So he teaches a lot of classes outside. He teaches a lot of groups and plant identification, wildcrafting, 
And we teach together doing uh, intercultural shamanism, plant spirit medicine, that kind of thing. So helping often city folks come over and sometimes local people join in too and just learning how to slow down and tune into trees and plants and rocks and water. And yeah, we studied with a Coast Salish shaman for many years, our beloved teacher, Ellen White. And uh, yeah, so we use some of our learning from that. And Don's developed a lot of his own work and we've developed our work together too. So it's fun. Okay. Well, it's really interesting. So you you help people to slow down and become more tuned into nature. Maybe just out of curiosity, perhaps for people listening who have difficulty doing that just right now in their lives, is there anything that you would suggest as a simple technique for people to uh, to try to maybe get to that point? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the simplest things is to become more sensory grounded. So we perceive our environment through our senses. And we all know that and we all sort of take it for granted. But if you really focus on each of your senses, when you're in nature, to really just sit still and listen and feel what you're feeling and see what you're seeing and sense what you're sensing. It's almost like a meditation in a way. It's just slowing your thought processes down enough so that you can actually get to the in-between places where you're just being in nature. That's probably the quickest way to describe it. So I guess there has to be a little bit of a discipline in terms of... Uh, just practice. Just practice. Just practice. Kids yeah. do it automatically. Kids can do it better than us usually. You remember being a kid, just playing out in nature. You just space out and get into whatever you're getting into, picking dandelions, blowing the seeds around. I don't know. Kids can really easily trance out and and just do it, you know? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, when you came earlier here and we had a little conversation, I was telling you that I spent years working in a fire lookout tower. Um, and so I'd spend five and a half months by myself and a lot of time by myself in nature. And uh, I, I saw the progression. What happened is from week to week to month to month that I would get deeper and deeper into it the more time I spent. And it, it made me realize that uh, the more time you put into that, the more you're going to receive out of it. Absolutely. I think a lot of people in the city who have really busy lives, and I mean, that can be true here too, you know, if they're just busy people, you don't tend to slow yourself down, you know, maybe at the end of the week, you put your feet up and have a beer after work or something, but it's not the same thing <laughs> as really focusing on it and communing with nature. It's, it's a different process. So it's good for the soul, good for feeling open to receiving information and all the latest research has really been supporting that, you know, how trees communicate through the mycelial networks underground and that trees have heartbeats and communicate with each other constantly, look after their young. I mean, there's all kinds of incredible research now out about that. There's research about trees looking after their young. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. How, how do they go about yeah. doing that? There's a beautiful book, actually. It's here at the Pender Library. I think it's called The Secret Life of Trees. It goes, it goes it's into worth it. reading. Yeah. Nice. I've actually heard of that yeah. book, but I haven't read it. But yeah. That's it's a, a pretty simple book, really. Like, it's an easy read. It's not a, you know, it's not complex. But he was a forester and responsible for looking after these forested areas. And, and he just talks about what he's learned. It's a beautiful book. Wonderful. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the past here and find out a little bit more about you. Uh, where where did you grow up when you were younger, Sandy? Where where did you uh, where did life start for you? Victoria. Oh, in Victoria. Yeah. I was okay. Born there. Born yeah. and raised in Victoria. Yeah. Okay. So what uh, what were your interests when you were a uh, a ten year old young Sandy? What, uh, what what was tickling your imagination then? I spent a lot of time outside, and I sang and danced a lot. My old one of my older sisters told me that. One time she, uh, she said, you know what I remember most about you when you were a kid? You're always singing and dancing. And I thought, because that wasn't in my consciousness, but I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I do remember that. I mean, I remember, you know, my, my parents would have friends over and I'd, I'd say, I'm going to put on a show for you guys and do a little song and dance. They loved it. They loved it. It was great. Right, so singing yeah. and dancing. We're- singing and dancing. Spending a lot of time outside. Um, yeah, in nature, just playing around with plants and communicating with birds. And I don't know. I was a lot younger than my older sisters. And so I had to spend a fair amount of time on my own. Yeah, played with a lot of kids in the neighborhood. We had a whole gang of kids. We used to just run around all day. That's what kids used to do. Yeah, you just you <laughs> didn't even go home. And like, there were only two reasons you went home. One was if you hurt yourself really badly and you needed your mom to fix you up or your dad. And two was if it was dinner time and you could hear your parents calling you for dinner. Those yeah. are the only reasons you went home. Yeah. Why Why would you want to be surrounded yeah. by walls as a kid yeah. on a nice, nice day? It was great. We had a lot of wild kids in our neighborhood. It was fun. Okay, so you uh, you had uh, older sisters. You said, "Are you the, are you the youngest?" I'm the youngest. Okay, yeah. all right. Congratulations, I am as well too. It's a wonderful <laughs> position to be in. It's I know it's been... pretty blessed position, actually. It is. It is. I feel like we can get away with so much. It's true. Nice. Yeah. But uh, being the youngest, so two older sisters. Yeah. Okay. Well, what what are their names? Debbie and Cindy. Debbie and Cindy. Yeah. Oh. Hence, hence the parents could not remember who they were calling Debbie, Cindy, Sandy, Sandy, Cindy, Debbie. I don't know. But you know how parents do that? I they can just, hear the confusion already, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Too, too similar in some ways or something. Definitely. But usually it was when you're in trouble. <clears throat> That's usually when I'm sure the... Oh, the, then you get the, the full name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, always. Always. <laughs> so you had two, two older sisters and uh, what was the age gap between uh, between you and your older sisters? They're Five and seven years older than I am. Okay. And do they still live in Victoria? My oldest sister lives in the Similkameen, and my other sister lives, well, just outside of Victoria. All right. So within within distance, close yeah. distance. And um, yeah, I'm always a little curious about people's parents as well, too, because just sort of interested in uh, in where, where people originate from and their parents. Could you uh, just tell us a little bit about your parents? Yeah. They are both, uh, they were both from Winnipeg. Uh, my dad was born in the Transcona area of Winnipeg, and my mom was from Portage La Prairie and grew up on a farm. Okay. And, did, and they made their way out separately to the West Coast? I mean, yes and no. They were already married and together and had my older sister, but there was a lot of work out on the West Coast. And so my dad came out first for work, and then my mom joined him later. Uh, and she was already pregnant with my other sister. And then they came out here and left all their family behind. So we didn't get to see our cousins and aunts and uncles and, and all that very often, which was kind of too bad. But it's also really nice to be on the West Coast. So I, I understand, you know, my dad worked outside. So working outside in 
Manitoba in the winter is a lot different than working outside in Victoria in the winter. Sure. Yeah. What did your dad do for work? He was uh, a lineman for Hydro. Yeah. BC Hydro. Okay. All right. Subformin lineman and taught underground wiring and that kind of thing. A big union guy. Yeah. (laughs) Just gave a fist pump there. All right. (laughs) Got to give my plug for unions, you know. Okay. A union plug. This is the first union plug (laughs) we've ever had on the show. All right, there's there's always time for something new, definitely. Yeah. Your and your mom. I tell us because uh, it's Mother's Day, so mm. let's hear a little bit about uh, your mom. My parents are both both dead. Okay, uh, they've been dead for quite a long time. But uh, my mother grew up in a farm. She had my dad had one sibling, and my mom had nine siblings. So very different sort of family systems coming together, and yeah, just typical farm life. You know, killing chickens and plucking them and baking pies and shoveling manure. And yeah, she was a real tomboy and she liked to hang out with her brothers and work in the barn. She much preferred that than being in the house with the women doing women things in those days. So I really liked that about her. Yeah, she was pretty feisty. Right on. Yeah. Uh, What was your mom's name? Hazel. Wow, Hazel. That's a beautiful name. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Good prairie name, you know, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hear it too much. I've never met a hazel. I don't think I've ever met a hazel. Anyway, great name. Yeah. Great name. All right. Well, just, I guess, shifting gears into another uh, line of question here. One of the the things I know about you is that you work with death midwifery or let's, how how do we phrase it, say that properly? It's hard to know how to label what I do because I do a number of different things. So... I've worked as a funeral celebrant. I've worked as a death midwife. Some people call it death doula work these days. I don't like the term doula. I'm not sure why. And there is an issue with the term midwife going on right now because the birth midwives don't want the death midwives calling themselves midwives, but that's a different situation. I'm not really concerned about that right now. But um, I've worked with death, dying, and bereavement for almost 20 years. So... Yeah. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm just kind of curious about it because um, we were talking a little bit about the show and I explained to you that uh, I read a book by a gentleman called Stephen Jenkinson who right. wrote on the topic and it piqued my interest. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious to hear about your experiences with uh, doing that because uh, you mentioned that in a poll that was taken not too long ago that it clearly showed people are very uncomfortable speaking about death. And uh, unsure what to do when death comes uh, into their lives via family members or friends. And I just think it's an interesting topic that I'd just like to hear you speak to. And um, I think it would be interesting for people to hear about. Yeah, it's a big topic. And there are a lot of facets to it. There's a big movement going on right now called death positivity. And some people take, you know, sort of like, that term takes them aback because, you know, how can death be positive? But there are a lot of really positive things about death and thinking about death. And I've learned so much working with death and dying and bereavement about how resilient people are and uh, resourceful they can be. I think, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the value of talking more about death and making it more a normal part of our life is so important because when a death does happen, especially if it happens suddenly in your close circle, 
it can be really disconcerting if you're unfamiliar with the terrain and what you're supposed to do or what you can do. You know, there's a big resurgence right now around uh, home funerals. There's a big movement back towards green burial. You know, all of these things are nothing new, of course. I mean, that's mostly how we've dealt with death historically for a very long time. The reason that things like embalming became popular was during the Civil War because there were so many people being killed. And a lot of the time they wanted to bring their dead back to wherever they were from in the States. And that required embalming because you can't, you know, you can't take too long. Uh, you have a few days before you have to do something. But embalming is really toxic. You're using formaldehyde and other chemicals. It's not good for the environment. So a lot of people are not opting for that as much as they used to, unless you have to transport a body a fair distance. So there's that part of death and dying. And then there's, you know, I mean, when a death happens, yeah, I've, I've had the privilege of working with over 200 families and helping them design their uh, loved one's end of life service. And so I've gotten to see a lot of family system turmoil. I've gotten to see a lot of family system love and uh, teamwork. And there's a lot of beauty in that. There's, there's a death. The death can bring out the best and the worst in people. Let's put it that way. And I think the more conversant you are and the more experienced you are, as long as you've been working through your grieving and not pushing it down, um, you know, it makes it a lot easier to deal with loss when it, when it happens. Most of us, you know, the majority of us are probably going to die of cancer. I think the statistic is around 80%. And a lot of cancers progress slowly. So we have time to process and time to say goodbye and time to let go before the death actually happens. And sometimes death happens quickly. And it's such a vast subject. There's so much to know. Uh, is there anything specific you want to know other than what we've chatted about. Yeah, I, I think that because what I'm thinking about is that initially my interest in it was really piqued because it shifted. Reading this book I, I read on the topic called Die Wise uh, shifted my perspective on on what death uh, looks like. and The actual physical process of no, death or you're talking culturally and socially? Culturally and socially. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And and anyway, I guess what I'm thinking of in terms of what we're doing here with a conversation going out to the um, the public is that we live on a place where there's a uh, substantial elderly population. And I was interested in hearing that death is something that's just not really talked about. And it's it's actually, it's not a surprise. And so I guess just sort of putting more light on on that topic of just like, how can people uh, incorporate more talk about death and, and uh, perhaps be a little more prepared for when something uh, mm -hmm. takes place? Yeah, I think one of the most important things is to have your wishes written down. So to have an advanced directive which means, you know, do you want to be resuscitated if you, you know, if you're in the dying process and you die? Like, you know, I have a friend right now whose father is dying in the hospital. And uh, long story, anyways, he, he's had to take a lot of pain medication because of the condition he's in. And his heart actually stopped and they resuscitated him because they didn't know that there was 
uh, do not resuscitate order. So it's, it's really important. That's just an example of how important it is to let your wishes be known to your loved ones or to your good friends or both. So that if you did die suddenly, they would know what you wanted and they would know how to proceed and feel okay about it. Because it's really hard to make those kinds of decisions when you're under duress and, and when you're really concerned about your person who's suffering and, you know, if that's the case. So having a will is really important. Talking about what kind of service you would like to have, what kind of celebration of life or do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be, you know, do you want a green burial? Do you know what a green burial is? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So it's really important to know and understand what your options are. There's power in knowledge. And I think there's even more power in knowledge shared. And I think that in family systems, um, my dad was always really comfortable talking about death and my mother was not. So I always really appreciated that about my father. He wasn't afraid to talk about anything, you know, and he would say what he wanted and what he didn't want and what he thought and what he believed. I think a good starting point is to talk at the dinner table some night about what do you think happens to you after you die? You'd be surprised how people have really different ideas around that. And it's fascinating. None of us know for sure, but it's fun to talk about and important to talk about. And, you know, it's provocative to talk about because it makes you think for yourself about, huh, what is it I believe? And what is important to me? Um, one of the other things that, you know, from doing celebrant work all those years, and I also volunteered at hospice for five years before that, actually, some of the time crossed over, I was doing both at the same time for a period of time. A lot of people don't know that they're allowed to do certain things. So, you know, I'd be planning a service, an end of life service with a family. And, um, I'd say, well, you know, we'd, we'd come up with this creative idea about what we could, you know, what we could do that was connected to this person and what they liked and what they valued. And, uh, and people would say, are we allowed to do that? And I'd say, yeah, you're allowed to do that. Yes. Yes, you are. Oh, I, I didn't know we could do that. You know, so I just think things would be so much, I mean, I think things are different around death in perhaps different around death in places like Pender, in some parts of the population, like people who have farms deal with death, you know, infrequently with animals and livestock and, you know, uh, meat butchering. And, you sure. know, so I think in, in everybody's norm is different. So it's important to look at what your norm is and think about what you don't know that maybe you'd like to know and talk about that. Right on. That's some great advice. And thank you so much for giving some words to all that because uh, there's there's so much there. And I think that it's a really helpful thing for a lot of people. And that uh, thank you. And thank you for speaking to that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. Right on. Okay, so let's shift back to uh, Pender Island experience here. Getting into the uh, second traditional question that we always uh, cover on the show is... Uh, who on Pender has helped you along the way since you've been here? Hmm. That's a good question. And it, it's been a number of people, as is true with a lot of other people you've interviewed. I listened to a few of your other podcasts, and a lot of people have said the same thing, and it's true. Uh, one of the first people that, that helped us is Teresa Barker. 
And uh, she lives here full time now, but she she didn't always. She was back and forth from town while she was working there. And um, Dawn had been invited by Zora Starr, who used to run Hartwood and live here before her husband passed away. She used to organize a lot of workshops. And so she contacted Dawn and asked him to come and do a herb walk over here. This was quite a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when. So he came over, did the herb walk, and Teresa was actually one of the participants and so got to know him a little bit. So we contacted her or ran into her. I can't remember how it happened. But anyways, when we were looking for property, uh, she was really sweet. She, we're talking and she said, you know, why don't you guys just come over here? Why don't you come over and stay at my place? I'll introduce you to some people and we'll go to the winery. And we said, wow, that would be great. Thank you so much. So we did that. And she introduced us to John and Eve Pollard and a bunch of other people that were at the winery that day and just got to know a little bit more about the community. And it was really nice to have that invitation. It was really kind and generous of her to do that. So thanks, Teresa, for that. We just ran into her not long ago at the community hall. Also, Tracy Calvert, uh, because when we decided to build, we were debating in the beginning, you know, between building straw bale or building with cob. And we had connected with Pat Henneberry, who Tracy had started Cobworks with. And uh, he wasn't available for another year and we wanted to start sooner. So we contacted Tracy and she was really warm and friendly and helpful and gave us good advice and said, no, don't do cob, do straw bale. <laughs> and she actually uh, helped us a lot with the plastering and telling us what we needed to do around, you know, structural and her partner Jude too. And Wendy helped with the plastering, Wendy Lopetecki. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, lots of people, lots of people helped. And uh, yeah, nice. lots of gratitude for all the help. Yeah. Right on. So a person who helped helped you uh, get introduced to the island and a person who helped you build your house. Two two very important people in the yeah. process of being here. Yeah. All right. I asked for some information uh, via an email before we did the interview and uh, you sent me a great email. Thank you for that. Seriously, that was, there, was, there was a lot there. I was like, whoa, I hope I'm smart enough to do this interview with you here. I know. I know. Well, I laughed when I got your reply back because I thought... Why is he so like worried about this? All I did was put a few sentences down about you asked me, you know, what are you interested in or something? So I, yeah, those are the things I'm interested in. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, and anyway, one of, the, one of the things that you mentioned is uh, you have a significant relationship with storytelling, it seemed like, from from uh, the email and also that you're working on a book. And so I just wanted to find a little bit more about um, your background with storytelling and also what the book is you're writing about. It's uh, a good question. Stories. I've been writing stories since I was a little kid. I've been keeping a journal since I was 14. Uh, a lot of those teenage ones got burned though. <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> but uh, I worked in bookstores when I was younger uh, because I, we didn't have a lot of books in our house growing up. It just wasn't my parents' thing, you know. There were magazines. There were some books. There was, you know, uh, what was it called? There, we, had a, we had a set of encyclopedias, which we, my sisters and I read cover to cover because we just couldn't get enough information. And our friends' parents used to take us to the library, which we loved. But, um, yeah, so when I got older, I worked at uh, kids' bookstores. And I've actually studied children's writing for a number of years and wrote a lot of, uh, we wrote a whole, a friend and I wrote a series of early readers, and then we wrote a young adult novel. We never 
pursued publishing it. We just did it for fun. And then uh, studied public speaking for a couple of years with Toastmasters. That was fun. And have been doing a lot of writing. So the book I'm writing uh, that I've been working on for the last several years, I had to put it on hold while we were moving and building and doing all of that. And I'm trying to find my way back into it now, but it's what I've learned being a funeral celebrant, probably the simplest way to describe it. But I've done a lot of research and uh, yeah, it's a little daunting. I've, I've written about half of it. I've got a full outline. I've written about half. And so I need to get back back into it. Okay. So is it, it's a nonfiction book, obviously? It is. Yeah. Okay. And is, is it to uh, sort of... To share some stories. To share some stories. To share some stories and to give it a context and to hopefully educate and inspire people. That would be my hope. I've also done a lot of editing and a lot of article writing and all that kind of thing. Don's written a book. I edited his book. So I've been involved with writing and editing and storytelling in a lot of different ways. I used to do playback theater with a group on Salt Spring years ago, which was really fun. If you ever get a chance to do playback theater. What is playback theater? Do it. It's, um, it's very intuitive. It's basically you've got a group of people. When you're practicing, you're doing all these exercises to be able to work in unison with each other. It's very process oriented. Basically, it's very experiential and it has to do with the audience. So the audience, okay, so we used to perform for audiences and we'd ask the audience for a story. So they would tell a quick story from their life and then we would act it out. And then based on their feedback, we would change certain parts or, you know, we'd work with them to play back their story to them. And it's really moving for people. It's really, especially if people tell really difficult, painful stories. Yeah. Amazing things can happen. Wow. Really incredible things can happen. Yeah. People are often in tears or just laughing hysterically or saying, yeah, that's exactly how it did. Oh my God, you guys got it. You nailed it. <laughs> so yeah, it's really fun. It's really fun. The only reason I stopped doing it is I was living in Victoria and, and it was happening on Salt Spring. So I was going back and forth every month to do it. And and then we do performances in different places and sort of a little traveling troupe. Nice. Yeah. So would you randomly select people from the audience or? People volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what the uh, long-term effect from that was, if there was some, some therapy going on there. Sounds like it. It is. It can be really therapeutic. It can be really therapeutic. Yeah. It can be really moving. So I love story. And the other, obviously, all the years that I did celebrant work, I was writing services for people, personalized custom services for people. So not, not rote services, not the same thing every time, but a really unique, different thing every time and incorporating ritual and ceremony into it. And uh, often families would ask me to write the eulogy. So it's always better if family or friends write the eulogy, but a lot of people don't want to or just can't. So I've written a lot of stories. Wow. A lot of life stories. So how was that process? Did you interview family members and get some stories? And how did you craft that all together, would you say? Yeah. I mean, the art of being a funeral celebrant is really demanding. You have to pull on. I mean, I can honestly say I had to pull on every skill set that I possess to do it well. You have to understand how to facilitate a group. You have to understand family dynamics and processes and how to work with those. Uh, I would spend about one to two hours with whoever they wanted to gather together. Sometimes it was just family. Sometimes it was friends and family. And um, 
just get the stories coming. Just ask them questions about the person, what they valued, what they believed, what they were like, favorite memories of them, all kinds of things. People would just really offer up beautiful, beautiful stories. And then I just took a lot of notes and then I'd craft the service from that. And it's challenging. And then present it, do the public speaking, do the ceremony, facilitate uh, everything that had to happen. Usually go to the reception after. The family usually wants you to come to the reception. So just connect with people and yeah. That sounds intense. It's incredible. It's incredible. And some people even planned, even contacted me to help them plan their own service. Mm. That was, that was really something for me. Uh, I worked with this one man. His name was Michael. Beautiful man. He had a really, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember now because it was a lot of years ago, but I think it was pancreatic cancer that he had. So it was fairly quick and he knew it would be. And uh, he didn't want his kids to have to try to make all those decisions when he died. And he had been to a service that I'd done and he liked it a lot. So he called me and I went and met with him and we sat together for about two or three hours and laughed and cried and he told me stories and it was beautiful. And then uh, I crafted the service and then a few weeks later uh, he died and then I facilitated the service and he he had a friend who was helping coordinate everything. So she was sort of our go-between and she was lovely and... um, we put together the service and people came up after and said, wow, how long did you know him? You know, and I said, just a few weeks. Just, we just met not very long ago, actually. So if you take the time, you can really create something meaningful for people with people, not just for them, but with them. And the whole trick is it has to be participatory. You have to get people involved as much as they're able and willing to be involved. And amazing, beautiful things can happen. Really, like, I just have a million stories, but people are astounding. People are, there's something beautiful that happens when people are grieving and around death. What I really like about it is there's no pretense. And I really like that. I really like that. I like it when people are just who they are. And it's a real privilege to have people trust you and put something that important in your hands and say, help us, help us do this, really help us honor this person. It's a huge privilege. Sure. And when you say no pretense, I guess, because we wear masks uh, the vast majority of the time, I guess, and and is what you're saying at, at that point, the masks are peeled of that, off? A lot of that falls away. It's not that it's not that people lose their good ways. There's still the niceties can still be there, but the real stuff is there. The real hard stuff and the real, um, poignant stuff. There was one service I did. It was a young man who passed away unexpectedly. He was in his twenties, really loving family. I went to their home to meet with his siblings and the parents. And when I got to the door, his mother said to me, ah, maybe it's a good story to tell Mother's Day. His mother said, before we get started, I want you to see his room. And I said, okay. So I took my shoes off and I followed her up the stairs and down the hallway. And she opened the door and 
the bed sheets were still must from the night that that he died uh, before you know when he was getting ready to you know go out or whatever from the night before his bed was still must up they left everything the way it was they had a hockey jersey framed on his wall colognes on the dresser hockey stick in the corner guy stuff you know dirty socks and underwear in the laundry basket and we we just stood there together and she started to sob. And I just stood there with her as she cried. It was heartbreaking and beautiful. At the same time, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, And I've had so many treasures of moments like that with people. So that's what I mean when there's no pretense and you just see the rawness of grief. It's it does something really deep to you. It, 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 I feel like I've always been a compassionate person, but it, it makes you even more compassionate toward people. And yeah, yeah. you know, it, it makes you have to imagine what it's like to be in other people's shoes. Sure. You know? Well, there's nothing wrong with having more compassion for sure. How, how has that translated in your own life about your feelings about your own mortality? Has that affected you in any way? It must have, I'm sure. Absolutely, yes. And my feeling is, there's no doubt about it, separation is really painful. There's no easy way through it. You just have to go through it. But I really sincerely believe with all of my heart that death is not a bad thing. And so I think we all naturally have fear around death. I think that's really normal and really healthy. And really, you know, we just, it's the unknown. We don't know. We don't know exactly how it's going to unfold or what happens after we die or any of those things. But all I can tell you is I'm really convinced from all the experiences that I've been a part of that death is not a bad thing. Now, that's not to say that it's not excruciating for the people left behind. And it's not to diminish how hard heavy bereavement is. Absolutely, that's true. But death itself is not the enemy. It's just the flip side of birth. And it's part of life. And we need it. We have to have it. We wouldn't value things the way we value them if there was no death. If we didn't die, if we were just here forever, can you imagine? There'd be nothing to make you treasure anything or anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. You would just take everything for granted because you could, because that tends to be our nature as human beings a lot of time. You know, we get used to things and we think they're going to be there forever and they're not. This life is fleeting. You know, what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? Yeah. I mean, the poets, the poets know it and uh, artists know it and, and uh, people that are around death and dying know it. And so... I think it's encouraging in a way that a lot of these death practices around keeping the body at home for a few days so people can come and say goodbye, doing home funerals, doing green funerals, celebration of life, you know, all of those things are really healthy ways of engaging with death and, and loss. So I'm all for it. I I guess I'm sort of a death activist in a way in that sense because I see the benefit. I see how people benefit from those things. It's more integrative. 
it's a little easier to to take if you're involved in it. If the if somebody dies and the body just gets whisked away, it's not very integrative. It, you feel discombobulated, you know? It's, sure. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting really into deep stuff here, but well, I, on I, Mother's Day. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. perfectly fine. I really appreciate you speaking about this because uh, I'm kind of amazed how interested I am in this topic, and just I, and I didn't necessarily know how this interview was going to go. I don't really have a super duper plan going into these things. I like to let them flow. And um, thank you so much for speaking so much about that because I personally find it really interesting, and I, I hope that the people who are listening also find it interesting as well too because I, I think it's one of those closeted uh, topics to a degree that doesn't have a lot of light on it. And uh, to put some more light on that, I, I think is purely healthy. So thank I you. I think so too. You're welcome. And thank you. Yeah. Right on. Um, we're just uh, closing in on uh, on wrapping up our, our time here. And we're, not, we're, we're getting near the end. Day. We're not quite there yet. But uh, you, you talk about spending time in nature. And, in, and uh, I always wrap up the show with uh, going out onto location and, uh, and to a place that means something or was mentioned in an interview. Mm. And I just wanted to know a particular place on Pender that uh, has captured your heart because you talk about spending a lot of time in nature. And uh, where, where on the island do you feel like is a very special place to you? I really, really love Oak Bluffs. There's just something so majestic about that view and being closer to the eagles and ravens and turkey vultures. I don't know. They fly by and they're almost right in front of your face sometimes. But I also love really, you know, places like Thieves Bay because we've seen so many orcas there. And uh, one time they were literally about 30 feet away from us, about 12 of them just going by. I mean, where do you get to see that that's such a gift there's so many beautiful places you were just on oak bluffs today actually i was on oak bluffs today yeah we we went hiking there my family and i and it's yeah it's so pretty up there all the columbines are in bloom right now and the little i'm not sure what they're called actually we were just debating what they were there's like three or four little leaves and then a tiny little white star flower Dawn thought maybe they were twin flowers or... Anyway, I'm not sure what they were, but there's lots of those blooming right now. So pretty. And all the cleavers are coming up. Nice sticky yeah, cleavers. Every, I know. They're so fun to like... When the kids were little, we used to take pieces and like throw them and then they stick to your jacket. Yeah. <laughs> they still do. You can yeah, still do it today. I know. It's, it's great. The cleavers game. are awesome. And uh, oh, oh, I know. There's a beach on South Pender... It's the one with all the sandstone carved rock. Oh, the, do you it, know? Do you know where? I, so when you're we're driving down Canal and you take the sharp right to continue into, into the valley, you take, go left. You yes, go left. Yes, yeah, right, yeah, and it's down, down there. there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's so beautiful down there, and there's a fern grotto on one end. If you hike around and you go around the rocks, there's this dripping hollow fern grotto with all these ferns growing down. It just looks prehistoric to me. It's beautiful. And the rocks down there are so fantastic. For sure. My yeah. my wife, Jenna and I, we, uh, we spent the, uh, the first day of spring and it was seeing the sun come up from that, uh, that beach, got the blanket out and, uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. It was such a gorgeous little, uh, little experience actually. Yeah. When we first moved here for the first three months, we went hiking almost every day because we were trying to get to know the islands and 
all the different beach accesses and hikes and so on. And, uh, but we never came across that one for some reason. We, I don't know what happened, but we missed it. We were, you know, we used the hiking maps and all that stuff, but we somehow didn't find it until I think just last year. And we were so elated when we found it. It was so pretty down there. Definitely. And, yeah. you know, that's something I hope to, uh, to get people a little inspired by about listening to this as well, too, is that, knowing there's so many great places to go on to this island because I, I know like myself i get into ruts where i don't go to places for years and uh and wow. then I, I and then i go back and i think wow how come i haven't been here since this time so it's been fun for me to go to a place to then tie up the show and actually have that experience of being there as well too and then trying to encourage other people in that way so yeah but um Looks like we're we're nearing the end here. So now I will throw out the final word to you. Final word to you, Sandy. Is there anything that you want to say to uh, end off this interview that you uh, you didn't get to say? One of the things I really appreciate about Pender and the people on Pender is that I think someone else alluded to this in one of the other interviews, but it's like a microcosm of a larger city or something. There's all kinds of people here. And I really like diversity. I really, I'm into intercultural communication and that's what I studied uh, a lot. And uh, I just love that. I love it. It makes, it makes, I like that it's intergenerational here. I like that there's a lot of people from different cultural backgrounds here. I like that the socioeconomic spectrum is quite broad. I just really, I really like that. It makes for, I think, it makes for a healthier and more interesting and more dynamic community. And uh, yeah, and, and we've met some fantastic people here. There's just, a, there's a lot of really good people here. So thank you, Pender. Right on. Thank you, Pender. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Chris. All right. So in honor of that interview, I made my way down to Ansia Road Ocean Access. Now, this is located on South Pender Island, a little ways off of Boundary Pass Road. And I parked my car after driving here, walked down a little trail, down a relatively steep wooden staircase, which led onto a five or six step stone staircase, walked across the driftwood that was on the uh, high end of the beach, it's about 7.30 in the morning, the ocean is lapping its way up onto the shore, and the tide's out right now, and I made my way off to the left, where there's large rocks. And there's also a amazing rock to my left here, with hollowed-out areas that have these honeycomb features to them. Really beautiful. The sun is shining. I see a couple boats out on the water this morning. Really beautiful out here. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Until next time.